Good evening. This is Lara Coates Live, and it's already morning in Israel and also in Gaza. And really, I want to take a step back tonight, and I want to talk about the weight of all of this. It's touched all of us, and you've undoubtedly been feeling it too. Perhaps many of you are extremely knowledgeable about, about the political history of the region, and maybe many of you may be learning in real time since Hamas's unprecedented attack. And you're trying to understand the complexities and the nuances, all, of course, while trying to process the horror of war. You're not alone in trying to balance when to lean in and when to look away. The stories of brutality and cruelty and devastation, they are truly shocking. The death toll is still rising. At least 1,200 people have been killed in Israel since Saturday, and that's according to Israel's public broadcaster. 900 people dead in Gaza, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. Mothers, fathers, children, brothers, sisters, neighbors, friends, slaughtered in the middle of their daily lives. Now, Israel is hammering Gaza with airstrikes, hitting hundreds of targets and reducing neighborhoods to rubble as new and unthinkable atrocities are being uncovered in its territory after the devastating attack by Hamas militants. Bloody hands of the terrorist organization Hamas, a group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews. This is an act of sheer evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. Among them, at least 14 American citizens killed. But the numbers, they can't even begin to tell the full story. The toll that it has taken and, and will take is perhaps incalculable. This is about human lives, human lives that have been lost, human lives that have been traumatized, human lives that are still missing. A man who was abducted from the music festival attacked by Hamas gunmen. The situation is brutal. Uh, whoever saw the video got intimidated, right? It's, it's horrifying to see your nephew in this situation basically hit, brutalized, something that anybody that is human will be, of course, shot. A woman murdered inside of her own home by Hamas posting video of her dying on her own Facebook page. My grandma was more concerned about my mom and my aunt's safety than her own. She was in the shelter, but she was just making sure that we're all safe, that we're good. And then within 10 minutes of those messages, um, we saw the video. A man who says he played dead inside of a bunker as people around him were killed. I just covered myself with uh, dead people, a lot of dead people. So I, I stayed for there inside like for hours, like just, just waiting for die, you know? I, I just wanted to die in peace because I suffered so much, so much, the gas. I, I just, inside, in the middle of the gas, I just remembered, I don't know how it was, but now I know, I know how it was. I just started to think how it was in, in the Holocaust. A mother looking for her daughter, holding out hope that she may still be alive after fearing that she was killed 
and paraded through the streets. We heard information that she is alive and that she has a bad head injury and is in a hospital. That, that's all we know. And, um, and that gave us hope. A Palestinian-American mother stuck in Gaza with her three children with no way out. It's terrible. My kids are very scared and they're afraid of what's going on. I have to explain all the time. Uh, I have to calm them down and uh, trying to uh, make them feel comfortable, safe. So tonight, I'm going to talk about the human beings in these headlines. Now, I cannot control, nor am I trying to tell you how to feel about any of them. I can only tell you what has happened and what is happening and what might still happen from the real experts. Tonight I'll talk to a survivor of the carnage at the music festival where 260 people were killed. And here with me in studio tonight to help put everything we're seeing in perspective, two people who know this region inside and out. Mark Dubowitz is the CEO of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He has advised four different presidential administrations, is an expert on Iran, and has even been sanctioned by them for his work. And Beth Sanner, a CNN national security analyst, who is the former deputy director of national intelligence. Together with them and you and I, we are going to learn together. But first, a father whose son is missing after a massacre at his kibbutz. Jonathan Dekohen says he does not know where his 35-year-old son is after a Hamas attack near the border. And he joins me now. Jonathan, I'm so sorry about what's happening to your son and everyone at the kibbutz. Have you been in touch with U.S. officials about your son and are they getting you any information? Well, good morning. The picture on the screen is my beautiful son, Sagi, 35 years old, father of two wonderful, beautiful little girls, expecting a third girl in a couple of months. Uh, the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem and the U.S. State Department uh, as well contacted me uh, last night, Israel time and just to touch base to make sure that they had the correct information about my son as an American citizen, but they were not able to offer any information in there. For all of those, for well over 130 people from our region uh, who are either um, verified as hostages in the Gaza Strip or missing, like my son, uh, there's no information of any kind whatsoever since they were abducted on Saturday morning. Have they given a kind of timeline of any kind of when they might expect to provide information or are they still trying to uncover the details? I can't speak for in the American government or for the Israeli government, uh, to be honest. I'm an Israeli-American, but I've lived my entire adult life on uh, kibbutzim in Israel uh, along the border. A kibbutz is a communal farm. It, it, it is a a place of beauty, a place of, of agricultural production, um, culture. Um, I have no way of estimating how long it might take for any kind of negotiations, if they will ever exist, with Hamas as a terrorist organization uh, to free any of these people. And to keep in mind, we're not talking just about young men like my son. 
this is from infants to very elderly people who, who could not actually move on their own to be taken into captivity. They were taken in wheelchairs, dragged um, across fields in order to be taken back to Gaza. Um, so we're talking about uh, an absolute disaster. And um, in our case, perhaps uh, a bit differently from the um, those poor young people who were murdered at the music festival, this is our home. Our, our home was rendered uh, utterly uninhabitable. The entire community and almost all of these border communities are no longer inhabitable because it was not just murder. Uh, it was not just barbaric treatment of people of all kinds. It was the utter destruction of our communities. We at this point have nowhere to go back to. Jonathan, I understand that of the 400 people in your kibbutz, you say that fewer than half are survivors tonight. And what is to come now of those who remain and are accounted for? Where will you go? Well, for the next week or so, um, well, the Israeli government has provided us temporary housing in a hotel in Elat, a city at the southern tip of Israel that's uh, very far in, from the fighting and for the meantime at least is quite safe. It, the condition of my neighbors, my friends, my family, my grandchildren uh, who survived is unspeakable at this point. Um, all of them are in one or another state of trauma and they woke or were awoken um, around 6 a.m. on Saturday morning by something that can only be described as a pogrom. You know, the terrible images that most of us would have thought could not possibly reappear um, in the 21st century um, took place in my home um, over the course of about six hours before between 6 a.m. Um, and the time that the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, um, actually came to uh, repulse these invaders, these barbarians from our homes. And by that time, uh, several dozen of our kibbutz members from, as I said, infants, toddlers to elderly people were murdered in their homes, asphyxiated. Uh, all of our homes were set ablaze by these terrorists. Um, visibly taken away or uh, taken away to Gaza as hostages and we know nothing of their fate. Or like my son, we simply do not know exactly where they are. They, we know that they were on the kibbutz at that point. Um, we lost communication with Sagid around 9.30 in the morning on September, uh, excuse me, 9.30 in the morning uh, on Saturday as he, like almost all of the other young men on the kibbutz, were doing everything they could to defend their families and everyone else's families on our very small community. Jonathan Dekochen, thank you so much for joining. And we are thinking of your family and your community and your son and his family, among so many others. Thank you. Thank you. Amid all those horrifying stories, Israel now appears to be preparing for a possible ground invasion into Gaza. I want to go to CNN's Matthew Chance, who is live for us right now in Tel Aviv. Matthew, President Biden pledging his support to Israel as more troops are moving to the border with Gaza. What do you expect Israel's next move to be? 
Yeah, Laura, um, Biden, President Biden pledging his support and also placing the world's biggest aircraft carrier, I remember, um, uh, off the coast of Israel as well to provide a deterrence in case any surrounding countries uh, decide they, they want to try and intervene if and when Israel embarks on a land invasion of the Gaza Strip. Uh, of course, the Israelis have not given a time frame for that, although the defence minister of the country today uh, said that it, it would happen later. Um, but in the meantime, remember that Israel has uh, called up more than 300,000 of its reservists. Uh, it called ju just another 60,000 in the past 24 hours. Um, it's deployed something in the region of 35 battalions in various places around the country, but directionally towards uh, the Gaza Strip. And so every sign, every pointer on the ground is that uh, preparations for a, a land invasion of Gaza of some kind uh, are being are being set out. Now, if that does happen, and I think there's a, there's a lot of political pressure on the Israeli government to do something like that, um, I think it will have a lot of support amongst the Israelis because you know, we've spoken to even the most left-leaning of Israelis in this country that have been in the past opposed to uh, incursions by the Israeli forces into Gaza. Even people like that are telling us that they now support military operations uh, towards and inside uh, of Gaza. And so the effect of these attacks by Hamas, and we've been reporting on how appalling they are, has had uh, uh, the impact of really uniting Israel um, uh, in this moment of horror and rage and, and crisis. Remember, every Saturday for the past several months, there have been protests against the Israeli government. Um, that has now ended. Um, the, the political divisions have, have closed, at least for the moment, um, as the country sort of braces itself for what will be the next stage in this uh, self well, this, this, the, the war that it has said it is now engaged in. Laura. Matthew Chance, thank you so much from Tel Aviv. I want to bring in our experts on the region. They are with me in studio. Mark Dubowitz, excuse me, and also Beth Sanner are here with me. I mean, we're hearing these stories, and it gives you such pause. Your heart breaks and it sinks just thinking about the stories that are told and those we are yet to uncover. You heard from President Biden today, who has expressed support, obviously, for Israel as well, and confirming, although, that there are some Americans who are not only missing, but are hostages both of you have such expertise in this region. You lived there recently over the past 14 months, among other things. Um, what does it look like, the response, and how complicated now that Americans are involved, how does that complicate and escalate the situation? Well, it's, it's certainly very complicated for, for President Biden. I mean, obviously, we've, we've had American citizens killed, um, taken hostage. Um, but I think President Biden, you know, made it very clear that, that his support for Israel, as he said, is, is unwavering. Um, I spoke to his, his Israeli friends who have you know, witnessed these horrors over the past three days, and they said the first time that they actually cried was during President Biden's speech um, because he gave such um, expression to their pain. And I, I think President Biden obviously has been through a lot of pe family pain himself, um, having lost a wife and 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 two children. Um, so I think for Israelis, um, they are they're incredibly grateful to the president. And I think the president himself, even though this is an incredibly complicated political issue for, uh, for President Biden, 
understands that Israel has to do what Israel needs to do in order to destroy Hamas, uh, the terrorists that have committed this genocide, and go after the weapons that are inside Gaza. You know, it was interesting, and he's often noted as sort of the, com- the compassionate-in-chief or, um, and, and comforter-in-chief. He did not talk about restraint. Some people expected him today in this speech not only to do what you're talking about, which cannot be given short shrift, but also to maybe address, would he talk about restraint? How would he address this? What are the options he has? He doesn't actually have any options, I think, to restrain Israel. First, I don't think that he really wants to at this stage. I mean, I think that there is this sense that there's been this total paradigm shift. Um, You know, this isn't just a small incursion, you know, I I don't want to diminish anyone's life, but, you know, maybe one or two people getting killed or, you know, rockets going off. I mean, this is of a proportion that is unfathomable for anyone involved looking at this. And so that is why the Israeli public and the president over decades and decades and decades, you know, very much committed um, to defending Israel. So this is part of his DNA and saying this must stop. You know, it can't actually happen again. And so now something has to be done to prevent Hamas from doing this again. And so that's where we are now. But I do think that we're going to reach a period in the coming weeks now, if this ground incursion goes forward at any scale, you know, maybe it'll be smaller and maybe it'll be probes in and out. So we don't know exactly what this will look like, but if it is at scale, and there isn't some way of evacuating uh, Palestinian children and, and innocents, um, we're going to see a lot of carnage. And, um, and I think then uh, we're still seeing in parts of our own society people being a little bit wishy-washy about understanding what Hamas is all about and not understanding that really the... the that they're a terrorist group. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a very important point. And if I could just add one quick, I've been hearing now stories that haven't been reported yet about um, the scale of, of the massacre. I mean, uh, babies, uh, hands tied, um, decapitated, uh, bodies burnt, pregnant woman uh, murdered, um, their, their pregnant uh, child ripped from their bellies with the umbilical cord still attached. I mean, the, these are stories that are going to that are going to increasingly come out, and it's uh, this calculation for the president for the Israelis is going to be informed by that. The information that we continue to gather and assessing the veracity and the shock and the horror of all that we're seeing, Mark, Beth, stick around. We're going to rely on your expertise and really unpack in great detail what is happening together here. There's also a shocking report from Reuters that says Hamas fooled Israel for months as it planned this brutal attack. I'm going to talk to the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper. Um, What Israel needs to do, what does need to do about this, what it seems to be a huge intelligence failure. And also coming up, I'll talk to a man who actually escaped the music festival where 260 people were killed. I'll ask him what he is saying about his missing friends. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, tonight, President Biden is taking a harder stance against Hamas, calling the terrorist organization's attack against Israel sheer evil. Here's what he had to say. The brutality of Hamas, these bloodthirstiness brings to mind the worst, the worst rampages of ISIS. This is terrorism. But sadly, for the Jewish people, it's not new. Well, my next guest, he knows very well how these groups operate. He's CNN's national security analyst and the former director of national intelligence. James Clapper is here with us. Also back with me, Mark Dubowitz and Beth Sanner. Director Clapper, thank you for being here tonight. You, you heard the president of the United States, and he was comparing the brutality of Hamas to ISIS. And we have seen the horrifying videos, the indiscriminate killings. How did Hamas get to this level? Well, I think it starts with um, the, the lengthy uh, blockade that uh, Egypt and Israel imposed on the Gaza uh, Strip and restricting uh, goods and services that uh, would, would, had before previously uh, gone into the Gaza. And so half the, about 40% of the population are youth and I think uh, many uh, of the, this youth got radicalized. Um, the frustration, the sheer uh, hatred of, of Israel and Israelis uh, is, what, is what led to this. And I think there were some other factors that uh, probably affected the timing of the attack, the, you know, the relationship with 50 years since the Yom Kippur War. Uh, and I think that uh, strategically, I, I think Hamas grew concerned about, and as for that matter, their sponsor, um, Iran, concerned about the dialogue between the Saudi and Israel brokered by the United States as kind of a follow-on to the Abraham Accords to normalize relations between Saudi and uh, Israel. And I think Hamas found that extremely threatening and felt uh, perhaps you know, left out of the discussion. It's almost unfathomable for us in the West uh, to comprehend the level of, of hatred and the animal-like behavior that has been inculcated among uh, Hamas, um, rivaling if not exceeding the violence of ISIS. It, it is uh, really hard to get your head around. It really is, and it's an extraordinary comparison for so many reasons. And 
we're also reading and learning more. Reuters actually is reporting, Director Clapper, that Hamas actually misled Israel for months as it was planning the attack and even may have constructed a mock Israeli settlement in Gaza where militants actually practiced a military landing and trained how to storm it. How, how could that have been missed then, if true, by Israel and also our own intelligence? Well, Laura, I think, uh, you know, some years ago, I toured along uh, as a guest of the Israeli army uh, along the Gaza fence line and got to personally observe the intense uh, scrutiny that uh, uh, Israel mounted on a, on a 7 by 24 basis uh, into the Gaza. Um, cameras up and down the line, uh, the fence line, uh, signal intelligence collection tapping into their telephones and all that. And I think Hamas uh, went to school on the Israelis and just sustained what had become the normal intelligence picture that they portrayed to the Israelis. And I'm quite sure, and I think Beth has spoken to this, and I agree with her, that they did things in person, broke up into very small cells, probably each one of which didn't know what the other cells were doing. Now, this, they didn't do this overnight or in a week. This took months of planning. And as a result of taking advantage of this normalcy, uh, the normal patterns that they had exhibited, and then Sub Rosa clandestinely were planning and training for uh, such a mission. Now, I can't speak to uh, whether there was a training facility. Uh, there could have been, I suppose, and, and the Israelis, I, it would appear, if there was one, missed it. For the Israelis' part, they became preoccupied with other things, notably the West Bank, as more settlements, both licit and illicit, uh, were established in the West Bank. That created a tense situation, friction and security incidents in the West Bank. So what the Israelis apparently did was try to automate as many of these surveillance stations as possible, even automated machine guns, which are unmanned. Well, again, Hamas went to school on that and they took the communications relay towers out so that the cameras were no longer operative. And then that, that enabled uh, them to use bulldozers, low tech, but effective, to penetrate along uh, the, the Gaza line about, in about 30 places. Now, I think the fighters they sent, and again, this gets to their fanaticism, we're undoubtedly on a suicide mission. I don't, I don't believe, I, I have to believe they understood they probably wouldn't survive penetrating into Israeli territory. Now, this is me, you know, guessing right now, speculating, theorizing as are others. Sure. At some point, I'm quite sure the Israelis are gonna conduct a very thorough post-mortem of what occurred here. But for now, Director Clapper, it's obviously about survival and trying to get back the more than 100 to 150 hostages that are being held as well. Thank you so much for lending us your expertise. We're gonna come back to our panel as well and dive a little deeper into what can be described as the, I guess the um, fracturing 
and also trying to focus on what has happened in the region and how it could have been perhaps diversified in such a way that intelligence might not have been able to intercept appropriately. But it's one of the most horrific moments of this conflict, the attack on the Israeli music festival, hundreds of people killed, many at point-blank rage. Next, I'll speak with one of the survivors who knows 20 people who are still missing. Twenty-eight-year-old Sagi Gabai was dancing and moments later running for his life. He was among the lucky ones, perhaps. We now know that 260 people lost their lives at the music festival near Reim, Israel. Tonight, Sagi's reliving that horrific, life-changing moment, but with a different message about his missing friends. Sagi, thank you so much for joining us this evening. You know, I know it's morning where you are, evening here in Washington, D.C., and you say that you hope that the people who you were with just moments before and are now missing, you hope that they were killed. Why do you say this? Sagi, I think we're having a moment of difficulty trying to hear him. I do want to hear his statements. I want to hear about his experience, and we will get back to him as soon as we can. I do have my panel here, and I think it's important. We just spoke to Director Clapper formally, and he was talking about um, how he believes Hamas became akin to ISIS, as President Biden had described. He spoke about it as one part of it, the blockade as one of the factors behind radicalization of a population that is now 40 percent youth in, in Gaza. You disagree with that assessment. Tell me why. Well, I, just, I want to put it in a, a broader historical context and explain why there's a blockade of Gaza. Um, Hamas took over uh, Gaza after the Israelis withdrew every soldier, every citizen, every, every grave. Um, and Hamas had an opportunity to, uh, to build a, a decent society. They actually, it was a bitter Palestinian civil war where they actually killed and threw Palestinians off uh, rooftops and shot them in the knees. Hamas takes over and Hamas then begins to use um, the borders to bring in weapons uh, and brings in, brings in concrete that you would hope they'd use to build hospitals and schools like any uh, governing authority would. Instead, they build terror tunnels they used to uh, move weapons and fighters uh, into Israel. And so this is why Egypt and Israel imposed the blockade. But Hamas was founded in the 1980s, and its founding charter explicitly calls for the extermination of Israel. And I, I can tell you, I lived there in the 1980s, the 1990s. Uh, I remember Hamas suicide bombings, uh, where Hamas terrorists strapped suicide belts and walked into schools and cafes and discos and slaughtered Israeli children. So, Hamas slaughtering Israeli children and women mm. is not a new phenomenon, and it has nothing to do with the blockade. It has everything to do with Hamas's founding ideology, and it's been 35 years of slaughter of Jews that Hamas has undertaken. And I, and I guess, I mean, I agree 100% on that, and I think that, you know, understanding that Hamas has been a terrorist organization bent on the destruction of Israel since its founding, came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, and that has been consistent. I think that, um, you know, the conditions that they lived under, and partly this is also under Hamas's reign of terror in Gaza as well, um, 
you know, there are lots of people who live in Gaza that don't support Hamas. There are a lot of people that live in Gaza that are very afraid of Hamas because they're a terrorist group. Um, but living under the conditions of the last, you know, 16 years or whatever... Of the blockade. Of the blockade certainly um, helps Hamas's propaganda. It allows them to radicalize new people to their cause. Their cause has never changed. They are who they are. They're terrorists. And the why now, what does that speak to? It's not necessarily the irrelevance of the blockade. I don't understand either of you saying that point, of course, but the question for so many is who are looking at this. Why now? How could this yeah. have been? How could this have happened now, given the historical context and given the 16-year blockade? Mm-hmm. Why did it happen last Saturday? It, it happened last Saturday because this this plan is being designed and orchestrated out of Tehran by Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Right? And one has to understand that Khamenei has a long-standing plan to surround Israel with a ring of fire, which are terrorists and weapons on every border. And what Khamenei has understood, and he's had a long-standing partnership with Hamas and Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad provide about a billion dollars a year in funding, uh, weapons and support. And there's some disagreement about direction and control. But the, at the end of the day, what Khamenei wants to do is light up the fire in these borders. Mm. And he, is, he lit up the fire in the West Bank. Um, Israel shifted its military resources to deal with the West Bank and it left that southern border vulnerable. I, I agree with Director Clapper on the technical tactical analysis about how Israel missed it completely and became overly reliant on technology and not on force buildup. But uh, remember, Khamenei has, is behind this, and Khamenei has done a very so, strategic job of shifting these resources. And I think that, I think that definitely Iran, they're absolutely fellow travelers. Um, the meetings that t- started taking place in Beirut um, in the spring where all of the regional militant groups got together and they all talked about how they were going to attack Israel. So this is all part of you know, a shared interest. But I also don't want to take away the idea that Hamas, from its charter, has wanted to do this on its own. It doesn't need Israel to tell them what to do. Iran to tell them Iran, what to do. Iran, excuse right. me, to tell them what to do. Thank right. you. It's late. <laughs> um, but, you know, they have their own interests, just like the Houthis in Yemen. So, I mean, some of this is just like there's slight nuances of difference mm-hmm. here, but I think we all agree that um, this is a group of, of Islamic militants that are bent on destroying Israel. And the timing now, I think, has a little bit less to do with Saudi and normalization. But we can get back to that later. We have to go. We'll be right back, leaning on your expertise as well. We'll talk to Saji as well, who, as you know, survived that music festival. More in a moment. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. I'm back with 28-year-old Sagi Gabay, who is reliving that horrific moment at the music festival in Israel attacked by Hamas. Sagi, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to have you here. You know, I was asking you earlier, you say that you, you hope 
the people that you were with moments before and are now missing were, were killed. Why do you say this? Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a bit funny, I guess. But like, I think I think it's a better better uh, destiny uh, to be killed than be holding by Hamas uh, terrorists in Gaza right now. Uh, I don't want to imagine what happened to people that uh, get kidnapped and they don't have like mercy for 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 no one. I mean, women, children, uh, elders. So. It's a, it's a bit uh, weird uh, thing to say, but this this was because but this is what I think it's it's better to be dead than be kidnapped. Mm. Sagi, take me through those moments after the attack, and you you and your friends, I understand, you ran for hours. What were you thinking for all of those miles? Um, you don't you don't really think you're like in survival mode. You you just just try to move from situation to situation, and like lots of people start uh, talking in the phone with their parents, with their family, with their uh, friends. They try to tell them what to do or where to hide or where to go, but they don't really knew where exactly we are. So any kind of information could lend you to wrong decision. And then every wrong decision could lend lend you to to be dead or to be kidnapped. So you just need to try to to trust your instinct instincts and just try not to think right now and just act. Uh, this is what I I did. I actually broke my ankle during the running, but I didn't feel it because of the adrenaline. So, um, so this is like a this is this is how you manage like just try to run for your life and try to hide like there there were there were like uh missiles above our heads and you don't you don't mind it because it's not your problem right now even though like missiles above your head is super scary but you look for a terrorist uh, in the side of you so just look aside and try not to get killed uh this is this is how you manage like just running for your life and just that adrenaline. It's unimaginable to think about what you endured and, and what it's been like since. I mean, you've mentioned you left 20 people behind. Can you tell me what it's been like to try to locate them? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, important to understand, like the Nova, like the festival, is a community. So basically everyone knows everyone. We've been, there has been like a, Three, three thousand people, but the circle is very close. So all the people knows kind of all the people. It's friends of friends, and mm-hmm. it's really an un, unreal uh, situation, unreal uh, situation to live right now because you just see your friends posting uh, the photos in the social media of your friends and people you know, people you spoke, like people I spoke with in the party. Uh, so now they're missing. People I just get to know in the party. People I know from before. Um, it's it's crazy. It's crazy situation to be. So like uh, you you I I said to people who ask me how I feel that I uh, I didn't even have time to process my my uh, trauma mm. because now my heart is with the people stay there. Uh. 
Sagi, goodbye. Thank you so much for sharing. Unbelievable, the harrowing experience that you have endured. We'll be thinking of the people that you continue to look for. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. You're looking at live pictures of Gaza at the start of the fifth day of this conflict. Since Saturday, more than 1,200 people have been killed in Israel, according to the country's public broadcaster. 900 have been killed and died in Gaza, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. For more information about how you can help humanitarian efforts in Israel and Gaza, go to CNN.com impact or text RELIEF to 707070. That's 707070 to donate. Thank you all for watching. Our live coverage continues after just a short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.